<laughs> this entire episode is just a, a commercial for me, to advertising me to write music for Star. I really hope the episode just ends with the conclusion. Hire me. Boom. <laughs> I got faith in the heart. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, welcome to Into the Wormhole with Larissa and Lauren. I am your sweet, sweet siren, Lauren Lowen, and with me is my captain. Hey, it's Larissa Maestro here. (laughs) Larissa, I am angry. I'm so angry. I'm so I angry. I know. And, <laughs> and I'm sorry. Uh, I'm excited. But also, but also, I had to listen <laughs> to the song. I listened to it right before we recorded because I thought that might make sense. And um, just like this primal hot hatred started boiling inside me. <laughs> so if you haven't guessed, we're going to be talking about Lauren's favorite song today. <laughs> We this is this episode has been a long time coming because I feel like even before we started this podcast, we had heated conversations, not heated, but like conversations about this song in which you were like, I fucking passionate hate that song, passionate, I, discussions. passionate. Yes, <laughs> passionate. You're right. You were like, I just can't. I can't with that song. And I was like, Diane Warren. And you were like, I don't care. I That, that song is terrible and I hate it. Oh, but you know what? The, ah, there's there's more to it than just the song. It's like the context and also some other things that I've slowly realized thinking about it more and more. But yes, yeah. it, I guess we should uh, start from the beginning. We were talking about Faith of the Heart, which is the the song used for Enterprise. It technically oh. for Enterprise, they changed the name to Where My Heart Will Take oh, Me. Oh, yeah. But nobody ever calls it that. Everyone calls it Faith of the Heart. <laughs> So we're talking about the theme song from the series Star Trek Enterprise, the infamous theme song, the one that stands alone out of all of the Star Trek theme songs throughout history. The one of them that is not like the others. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like episode of Sesame Street. Right. Which Star Trek theme is not like the others? Uh, It's this one Um, for a lot of reasons, not just for one reason, for many reasons. So this song was originally written in 1998 by Diane Warren. It was called Faith of the Heart. The name of the song was changed for the Enterprise theme. It was called Where My Heart Will Take Me, I think because they were like, maybe it'll chart again, but it didn't. Um, (laughs) uh, And it was originally written for Rod Stewart to perform on the soundtrack for Patch Adams, that movie with Robin Williams in 1999, where he's yes. a medical student and he's he like is very silly and he makes kids laugh and that's part of his therapy. Yes, the power of laughter to thing. heal, and it's yeah. it's a very like feel good movie. I feel like it's when Robin Williams yes. was starting to be appreciated more as like a, an actor. Yeah, a thespian man. 90s Robin Williams man, like. 
that whole that whole era. Anyway, R.I.P. I know R.I.P. Um. Anyway, just anecdotally, this is also the same year that Diane Warren wrote. I don't want to miss a thing. For Aerosmith to perform on the soundtrack for the movie Armageddon. I had no idea. So does Diane Warren, I'm sorry to interrupt, but is Diane Warren, like, I don't really know that much about Diane Warren. Do they, does he, she, <laughs> we are talking earlier about how, like, technically, like, I couldn't remember if Diane was one of those names that yeah. could have been a male name or is, like, Dana or Stacy. And, um, but anyways, yes, uh, Miss Warren, like, does she focus mainly on songs for movies or is this just, like, a coincidence right now we're talking about? Um, She's written quite a few songs for movies that's not how her career started but she's i mean she's just written a lot of songs okay for a lot of people that i just i'm not a music person this is where star trek is fun where you can really hone in on focus on something that i'm less knowledgeable about yes totally okay so i'm gonna just talk about diane warren for a minute sure so diane warren started writing or started being successful songwriter in the early 80s um and she her like her first big hit was the song rhythm of the night for debarge oh my, oh my god yes you mean rhythm of the night. wait <laughs> wait which one the rhythm of the night dancing oh the that one what am i thinking of <laughs> i don't know <laughs> she's written a shit ton of songs and i guarantee you know a lot All of, them. of them. Okay. Um, she's so she's like one of the sort of last of this like Brill Building era of songwriters. Uh, the Brill Building was a, a literal building in New York where a bunch of songwriters worked and wrote songs. Uh, like Carol King. Oh, people that just like literally like the the world of creating songs and the world of singing and performing songs were separate from each other for a very long time. And Diane Warren is sort sort of comes from that world, um, and she was one of the very few women in that field who was a songwriter. And I was about to say, I feel like during that time, it, it would have been a bit huge accomplishment for absolutely um, a female songwriter to be so prominent. Absolutely, and for a female songwriter to be that successful and not have a writing partner. Ah. Um, so like for example carol king a very famous songwriter everyone knows her she had a writing partner who was also her first husband jerry goffin Mm. diane warren has never had a writing partner i would say probably 90 percent of her hit songs she wrote by herself and this is very unusual this is especially for a woman that she uh, was able to reach this level of success alone. Do you mind if I slip in a little comment? Yeah, that ties into this. Well, I feel like it's appropriate too, because who who is the writer that just passed away? The the female writer who did a lot of TOS and earlier Star oh, Trek. Oh, DC Fontana. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know, one thing I always remember is again the initials DC Fontana. It's like um, also during this era and even earlier. Our listeners may not know this, but a lot of women writers uh, in writing also went by their initials to hide the fact that they were women because publishers or the publishers were worried that people who were fans of the genres they were writing for wouldn't want to read something by a woman. So a lot of times they did go by initials. (laughs) Um, 
So it's kind yeah. of it's that also echoes with mm-hmm. me, even though they're slightly different worlds. That she was able to also go by her her full name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was able to be like, I'm a woman, and I'm writing these songs. And I guess Carol King too. Although I think Carol's one of those names too. That yeah, that that could be a girls. male name. Yeah, totally. And interestingly, that's also something that's that's mentioned and touched on briefly in the DS9 episode Far Beyond the Stars. They like ah. they, you know they talk about Kira Kira's character. Char- character or uh, Nana visitor's character in that world as using her initials so that people don't know she's a woman. Um, ah, interesting. It was it was it was uh, definitely like a little like hat tip to DC Fontana. Um, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So I'm just gonna talk about again like just how successful Diane Warren is because it is she's an enigma. It's like insane. The kind of success she's had. So she has written nine number one hits by herself. I think except for one which was co-written with someone. Nine number ones. That is a lot of number ones. She has had 32 songs in the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. She has won a Grammy, an Emmy, a Golden Globe, three consecutive Billboard Music Awards for Songwriter of the Year, and wow. has been nominated for 11 Oscars. Wow. So for songs and movies. Yeah. Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of my favorite song highlights of hers, I will now read Because You Loved Me by Celine Dion. Oh, gosh. Blame It on the Rain by Millie Vanilli. <laughs> All right. The famous one where they were not actually singing, but she actually wrote the song. (laughs) Rhythm of the Night by DeBarge, which I already mentioned. Nothing's Gonna Stop Us by Starship, which is my one of my personal favorites. (laughs) Nothing's gonna stop us now. Unbreak My Heart by Toni Braxton. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yep. Don't Turn Around by Ace of Bass. Whoa. But you have a personal connection with that song. I do. Personal. Very personal connection. How Do I Live by Leanne Rimes. I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith, which we mentioned. I get that was in... That was in Armageddon. Armageddon, right. Yeah. Yeah. Huge sci-fi blockbuster hit. Remember that. Remember that in your heads. Huge sci-fi blockbuster hit. I Get Weak by Belinda Carlisle. (laughs) I love that song. Uh... I Was Here by Beyonce, which was a huge, huge song. And my personal favorite that always surprises everyone, the Cher hit, If I Could Turn Back Time. Oh, hey, that's an amazing music video, too. Yes, that song and music video are just top. If I could turn turn back time. If I could find find a way. way. I mean, Diane Warren was able to tap into and create and perfect this pop song form that was just infectious for like two whole decades of time and do it literally by herself. Yeah, yeah. Like she she opened so many doors for women throughout her career. It's kind of overwhelming. And she also uh, literally did it single handedly. Like that's that's crazy. Yeah. Like for any songwriter. Yeah. Any time that would be 
a, a, a very noteworthy career. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I, I'm the, I'm the kind of person also, also I, I kind of feel like she, she writes music or she has in the past, at least in, in the way that our culture has been in the past, she writes music for women and about women. Hmm. And that is very interesting to me. She writes music that women tend to gravitate toward and want to buy and want to invest in and listen to because I I feel like women hear themselves in her music. That's a huge deal. Like she she was like you said before that uh that concept of a writer having to use their their initials so that no one knows they're a woman. That being a woman was part of what she was selling. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we talked about that a lot, like creatives bringing their experience and their perspective to the creative process. Yes, absolutely. So, so she, she never, she never had to like try to be more like a man. She never had to force it. Yeah, exactly. Because the thing that she was selling was that she was who she was and she was writing for the people she was writing for. Um, and this is a, this is a message to, media in general in the United States that like just because somebody's writing for a, a group of people doesn't mean it's not going to sell like like writing writing for women it's going to sell because there are women that want those stories <laughs> writing and I'm sure and yeah. I'm sure people would say, like for instance you mentioned you know Millie Vanilli like it sounds too like I'm sure there are plenty of like Keith was actually telling me how he went to like a Millie Vanilli concert <laughs> or you know, I'm sure plenty of guys bought the Armageddon soundtrack because that was like the. I remember during that time, what did you say? Like Armageddon was 1998. Yeah, that that was like that was like the big thing. I feel like for musicians to to was to have like a hit song on a soundtrack. Like yeah, oh Armageddon. yeah. You think uh uh what what was it like Goo Goo Doll? What's in um remember like City of Angels with oh, Meg yeah. Ryan and Nicholas Cage yeah. that had like Iris Morissette's hit yeah. that had Goo Goo Dolls. Yep, yep. The the movie soundtrack was a big deal in the nineties yeah, and the eighties like, and nineties. Even that's even the really bad Godzilla movie of Matthew Broderick. Everyone knew it because it had you know Puff Daddy's um his song yeah, and the, the Wallflowers had We Could Be Heroes like yeah absolutely this was a Movies, movie soundtracks was a big deal. It's not the same now. This was yeah. like, like you would actually go out and buy, like I would buy yes. a movie soundtrack. A For CD. like one song too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you'd end up with the whole thing. Like you would, you would buy, uh, um, the Matrix soundtrack for Rage Against the Machine, and you would also end up with uh, Du Hast by uh, <sighs> Rammstein. Oh, God, my brother got ready to Rammstein in the morning. That brings back <laughs> memories of high school. Like blasting in our Jack and Jill bathroom. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, so so yeah, there's there's the background on Diane Warren. Um, I am someone who fucking loves her. I love her. Is she uh, still alive? Yeah, yeah. Okay, she, you're she her wrote in the present tense, and I would yeah understand if you said she had passed away. But she's still writing. She she's still writing all the time. She's she wrote a whole bunch of stuff with Lady Gaga a few years oh, ago. Oh, okay. So I was, was going to ask a, like what her current projects are. Yeah, so that's definitely noteworthy. Yeah, um, she's this weird reclusive person who has never married or settled down, and like has she just like 
has this room that's just like literally like full of tapes and junk that she's never cleaned because she she doesn't she because she's really like uh know that room is very organized and clean that you're in i was poking fun at larissa because we have video and so i'm like pointing at her Uh, my room room that's just full jam-packed of of instruments (laughs) yeah but she she's really superstitious and she doesn't want to clean her office she's only let one person photograph it during her entire career and she like sits in this room with this piano which is full of piles of shit and then and writes hit songs in there and that's like her whole life and it's like yes yes amazing uh so she's just i i just i find her fascinating her music isn't for everyone obviously but she is excellent at what she does and she is wildly successful because of that and she's able to tap into she was able to tap into something sort of like primordial in a way in the yeah. pop music world you know well, well I, it's funny kind of segueing into this song um i i will say it is extremely catchy that's one of the reasons i was pissed off to listen to it again because i know it'll be stuck in my head for the next Sorry. week Yes, she, um, that is that is something she is known for. All of her songs are incredibly catchy. Going and you're like going back to like the, the uh, songs or any sort of product, whether it's Star Trek or music or anything, just because it may not be someone's personal taste, you can still recognize the um, artistry behind it, the craft. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I know. Like when you name all those songs, I'm like, oh, yeah, those were big songs and big hits. And I understand why mm-hmm. they were never my favorite thing. Like oh, yeah. I can tell you that Armageddon song, I was like, oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I can think back when I was in eighth, ninth grade, like rolling my eyes probably every time it was on the radio. And that's kind of what this song is. Are these? She, I, she writes all different kinds of music uh, with the ones you've listed, but I've never been a fan of just those big or ballads that yeah. feel very what's the word I'm thinking of? I'm going to say like, like sugary. Like, yeah, like syrupy, hyper-emotional yes. ballads. And but that's me. Yeah. <laughs> and I but, fucking love that shit. I well, eat that shit for breakfast. Well, and I can understand <laughs> because you're also taking it in as somebody who's a, a fellow creative. It's like when I see some really good illustration that one of my fellow artists do online and I'm like oh the way they used color and the way this is happening in this moment like that's great and I'm sure for you it's the same thing like you're processing it and dissecting it in a way that me just as a listener doesn't yeah I I literally was just I had a long lovely conversation with a dear friend of mine Tiffany Minton the other day and we talked in depth about Diane Warren and I remembered that the bridge section of I don't want to miss a thing, there's a key change. And that key change makes you feel like the rest of the song is higher and lifted yeah. when it's actually still in the same key as the whole beginning of the song. And it's see this, that for you is probably like mind blowing. Yeah, it's this it's this musical alchemy, you know? It's this yeah. this like uh because she doesn't read music. She's all she's self-taught. She's a self-taught pianist, self-taught songwriter. So she, when she does that, she's doing it from a place of uh, like internal intuition. Under, intuition and understanding of what this chord progression does for her and oh, wow. not from a, an academic perspective, which is like so fucking cool to me. 
And I love little songwriting tricks like that. I love I love when people use modulation and when people use um, borrowing chords from other keys to like make things feel a different way. And when she does it, it's just like, oh, masterful, just just masterful. And and I love pop music as well. So that's that's another thing that like, you know, I connect with with her because I I love a hook. I love a hook that just hooks you and you just can't stop singing it. I love it. And that's all her shit. Swinging her arms. (laughs) Like, just remind me of like the really uh, low, like pixelated Donkey Kong going after Mario. (laughs) (laughs) But that's me going after a pop song. pop music. Pop music. arms. (laughs) I really love pop music. Uh, Yeah, so there's absolutely that that uh, being able to recognize the skills inherent in creating something that you might that might not be your cup of tea, but a lot of Star Trek fans were unable to do that. <laughs> yes. Well, should we talk? Because what I find interesting, okay, there's a few things getting tying this into Star Trek back yes. a little bit more. There's a few things that make this very unique. First of all, that uh, it has vocals. Yeah. Um, second of all, that it's a song that existed before. I mean, usually the opening is something that is created for the show. And so yeah. the fact that this was a product even beforehand and used for the show yeah. is definitely something that's different. And then I think for a lot of people, just the tone of it. It's so, again, going back to that, like, ballad and you know what it reminds mm-hmm. me of hmm. is um and i think this is one of the reasons why i personally just go oh kill me <laughs> the 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 guy who sings it which i know we'll get to we we can kind of wait before we go way into that yeah but his voice reminds me of it's it's that very earnest kind of scratchy smoky voice and it reminds me of the musketeer movie yeah. don't tell me Da, 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 da. I do it for you. Is it another Brian of another of my favorite songwriters, Brian Adams. God damn it! So yeah, it's like that song, and it it reminds me of those songs, and I like really find those songs to be a little too much. Oh no, it's not. A, it's not everything I do. I do for you. It's uh, it's called All for Love. All oh, for love, okay. an awful one. Okay, yes. It's Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and Sting. That's right. It was just the three of them. Uh, okay. I love. I fucking love that song. I love. I love. I see again. I love Brian Adams. I love, like, uh, oh, what's that? What's the one? What's my favorite one? Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're so, not talking about Brian Adams. But I love. Kind of I love that kind of shit. Ma- oh, sorry. I was gonna say, it kind of makes sense because I, I have to remember Enterprise was what it started two thousand two thousand one. So it wasn't that far off from this period in music. Yeah, but it was far enough off. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. Things change very quickly now. Yes. So so this is a good point for me to get into Rick Berman. <laughs> yeah. Now my question is like, so tell me, Larissa, like, how did this all happen? We're talking about how it's so different and unusual. Yeah. Tell me how this came to be. So let's be clear. Rick Berman sucks. <laughs> And this is this is like widely known in our in our fandom that Rick Berman uh, was a controlling, homophobic, misogynistic asshole. And 
he did not listen to outside criticism. He very famously gave male actors time off for other projects, but then fired Terry Farrell when she asked to do the same thing. Like, homophobically squashed homosexual storylines, queer storylines that uh, producers and writers were trying to bring to the surface. Like, he is he is sort of like, he's the bad guy. <laughs> of of the star of the the backstage Star Trek world in in sort of like the late nineties early two thousands era of Star <laughs> but not Trek. In, in like a way less uh, charming Dakot way yeah like, he's, he's not, not as charming as Dakot you know no. there's no fun it's just all bad <laughs> yeah there's no fun in there no no fun in there he also he thought he had his finger on some kind of pulse like he had all the answers kind yeah. Of. And he did not. So he is responsible for choosing this song. (laughs) Um, And he was trying, I think, to be cool. But he did not know what was cool. He's like those those songwriters in Nashville that like are trying to write the song that's currently a hit on the radio. Yeah, just right kind of rehash now. it. Yeah, so like yeah. So uh, going yeah. So going back to the fact that Diane Warren had written "I Don't Want to Miss a Thing" for Aerosmith to sing on a hugely successful movie soundtrack for mm. Armageddon. This seemed to him like a f- a sure thing. This is where this is where sci-fi is going. People want to hear a big pop song in a movie, so let's do it for Enterprise. It's this new era of Star Trek, right? So he he then <laughs> tries to get that success with a fucking coupon. For a discount. You know what I'm saying? Uh. He says, okay, she already wrote this song. This could work fine. Instead of saying, hey, Diane Warren, want to write a new theme for a new Star Trek series? Yeah. Instead of taking a song written for Patch Adams? What? A song that's already had a life. This song already had a life before. Yeah. This song was already a hit. People already knew it. So he takes it and then he chooses a guy whose career is sort of floundering, but who kind of sounds like, again, a discounted Rod Stewart, a coupon Rod Stewart. Sorry. No offense to this guy, by Sorry. the way. Sorry. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. His name is Russell Watson. He's a good singer. It's fine. But like he was chosen because he kind of sounded like Rod Stewart. Yeah. It's, they were like, can you be Rod Stewart? Yeah. Right? It's so transparent. That's yeah. that's part of the that's part of the issue that I have with it is that it's so transparent. Um, they re-record it because it's cheaper for them to do that than it is for them to pay for the recording that Rod Stewart did because those Based- masters are owned by Rod ah. Stewart. They're owned by Rod Stewart's record label. I mean, it'd be a huge licensing fee, basically. Yeah, absolutely, it would be thousands and thousands and thousands yeah. of dollars like every time they play it somewhere. Yep, they exactly. would have to cough up money. Exactly. So they re-record it because it's cheaper. Again, also Diane Warren to write a new song for a series would probably charge some sort of fee on top of 
collecting all the royalties for the song. And sh- I'm well, and I'm sure that she would not she's not the kind of person especially at this point in her career, she's at the peak of her career at this point. She would not be willing to to sign away any of the rights to the royalties to her songwriting. So, it was cheaper on all levels for Rick Berman to choose a song from her back catalog, re-record okay. it as a sound alike and then use it as the theme song. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Kind of. I have questions actually for you. Okay. Because you know this. I am curious. Like we're talking about the like Rod Stewart and stuff like that. But how? Yeah. How does that work as far as the the licensing and compensation to her as the songwriter? Like when you say it's part of her backlog, do they just like why? Even if it's a cover, she wouldn't get like uh just like we're talking about paying money every time it aired. Why wouldn't some go to the songwriter? Oh, she just would. Vocalist. So here's the thing. Yeah, explain this. I'm really curious. So there are um, recording, there are royalties that go to um, whoever owns the actual recording. Okay. And there are royalties that go to whoever wrote the composition. Yes. And the royalties for the master recording go to whoever owns that. Usually that's the artist. Um, the label that the artist is working with for that recording. Okay. Um, sometimes the producer has points on that as well. Okay. Um, usually the songwriter has no ownership in the master recording. Okay. So basically yeah. it's like what in my industry, like if I made some art and I did what's called like a buyout, like I was like, here, I drew you this character and it's just yours publishing company. Um, Maybe not. The songwriting royalties are separate. So okay. so whenever that song is recorded, she she gets paid. Okay. So there there's money set aside for the master recording and there's money okay, set aside for the songwriting. When it gets recorded, you said. Right, right. Every time a recording of her song is played, she gets paid. Okay. But also whoever recorded the song gets paid. Yes. Um so, so that's why it's cheaper just to re-record. Yes, than it is of to license for... the song. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But then on top of that, somebody like Diane Warren, probably for, for example, for writing Faith of the Heart for Patch Adams, was paid a fee to write the song for the movie. So that her fee came out of the film budget for Patch Adams, for example. Okay. Um, So she got paid, wrote the song, then collected all the royalties from the song. In using a song from her back catalog... Paramount and Rick Berman and the budget of of Star Trek Enterprise did not have to pay her another fee for writing something new. And that's what I was going to ask next is Star Trek Paramount. Basically, that song was accessible to them. Yeah. Because they, of like, Patch Adams. I I feel like maybe who made Patch? This is a good this is something I didn't think about. Because if they already in a way like had the rights. Patch Adams is universal. It's not Paramount. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right, I was just wondering because, um, <laughs> okay, when I gave birth, I got to see the new Ghostbuster movie with all the women. <laughs> yeah. It's really bad. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that made me think about is how the music in the original was so much better. And yeah. it made me think about that really trippy song when all the ghosts are going in the sky. Yes, yes. And it's just like that weird synth wave, like yes. vocals. And how it was one of those things where when they were making the movie, it was just a song that was on somebody's desk you know, like a demo. And they were like, this song's really cool. Use it in the movie. 
And yeah. it just turned into one of those moments. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But that's what made me wonder if like, well, is it just something they, they had so they could use it, you know? Yeah. I, see, I don't. So I don't know the specifics of like exactly how they found the song. That's okay. It's, yeah. Uh, that was kind of just a question. And they're not. You to know those, everything yeah, those more, specifics so. aren't like out there. Like nobody really knows the the specific story of that. Like. Like, did Rick Berman watch Patch Adams? And he yeah. was like, this is the song. I need um, this song. Get me like, this song. Like, what? and if so, what the fuck were you thinking, Rick Berman? Uh, so he did this. He made this choice because he thought he knew what he was doing and he did not. Again, this this era of songwriting was already coming to a close. This was, style yeah. of songwriting was on its way out. Like, when when Diane Warren got that hit song with Aerosmith, they were trying to revive their career at the end of the 90s and had a big hit, but were unsuccessful in reviving their career. Did you actually know that was Aerosmith's only number one hit? And it was written point? by fucking Diane Warren. And it was <laughs> not because of Aerosmith. It was because Diane Warren was writing number one hits. Yeah, for anyone could have recorded that, that song. Oh. Anyone could have recorded it, and it would have been a hit. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Yeah, because a lot of their songs always reach number two. If you're curious, listener, <laughs> that was like a pop up video trivia thing yeah, that's been yeah. burned in my brain. Dude, I love, love that. Show. I love that kind of pop up video. I love that kind of uh, trivia a lot. Yeah. So we're here, like in this place where <laughs> Rick Berman is like a. An old dad dude who thinks he's doing a cool thing, but has no idea what the cool thing is. And And then his kids are like, dad, that's not cool. And they literally protest in front of Paramount. Like they go have a protest. They have online petitions asking for the song to be changed. It was huge. They hated it. They hated it. And like Berman gets flack for it. But more often than not, I see people giving Diane Warren a lot of hate. And I'm like, she didn't make this choice. She wrote this song for Patch Adams, which is where it belonged. I feel like that's people who don't know the story of it and don't understand. They just thought Diane Warren wrote it for Enterprise. Right. It's like, no, she didn't. Um, Yeah. If there's anything wrong with Star Trek, your first stop for who is responsible should always be Rick Berman. Uh, He doubled down after people were like, no, this is terrible. We hate this song. He was like, I think some people like the song. It was like a very Trumpian response. He was like, I've heard that people like the song. And it was like, dude, fuck you. Um, it was the maybe the only time that Rick Berman has ever defended and stood up for a woman in Star Trek uh, was when he defended his choice to keep this as the theme song of Enterprise. Um, ha 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 ha. Not a lie, though. (laughs) 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 And then on top of that, on top of doubling down, they re-recorded the song to try to make it better. 
after season three for season oh, three God. and yeah. made it worse, made it somehow a worse fit for the series yes. than it already was. Yes. So can I pause you for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> I just have to pause you because yes, I mean the song itself is very slow and ballad, and I, I forgot about like the guitar solo, like bam, 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 yeah. and um, which feels very like movie-rific. And then it, I was like, the song is horrible. It can't be. Any-. And when I say horrible, I don't mean the song. I mean it as the opening to a Star Trek show. And I'm like, this can't get any worse. And then the show was like, hold my beer. Yes. And it changed in season three to be really uppity with like a strumming guitar. And and it's just like it did it just to anger me even more. It was that was Berman doubling down. Yeah. Why did that happen? Because they were they heard people protesting and they thought that they could keep the song and and change it just a little and then people would be fine with it but that wasn't the problem the problem was that this era of songwriting had come to a close and people didn't want to hear this kind of song anymore it was over well and can we also talk about how just the fit can we just talk about how again i just for me as a fan like this to me was just like a bizarre marriage Yes. That, that's what it really is for me. Like this to me was sort of like a marketing, uh, like just a really weird creative decision. Like for, for, forget even about how like these songs were kind of starting to go out of fashion and the era of music. I'm usually very fluid and forgivable when it comes to different versions of Star Trek. Like I'm not one of those fans who are like, this is not Star Trek when yeah, I see yeah. Discovery or Lower Decks. It yeah, totally. Not we're thing. not we're not the kind of people that are like that. Yeah, yeah. it's like, eh, I might like one show more than the other and I, I take and leave what I you know like or don't like but this is the only instance where I watch something and I'm like this is not Star Trek <laughs> like this is not Star Trek and and that's for me it's almost like as a creative again I'm like this is a bizarre creative decision I just don't see this song representing Star Trek or Enterprise and yes. it, it just like to me it's like grading the, the juxtaposition and it's so emotional for something which you and I have talked about like Star Trek is more about kind of logic and you know there's like certain concepts of the universe like that's always what Star Trek has yeah. been about versus something that's more like Star Wars and space magic and it might be something a little more emotional so for for it, having such a emotional song for star trek that seems really off base too yeah yeah i mean that's that's one of the the like many fan complaints is that it's it's a schmoopy schmoopy that's the word we're going to use yeah it's it's really schmoopy and uh emotional and it also lyrically is focused on i have I have, first of all, faith, which is <laughs> sort of doesn't make sense in the Star Trek universe. As we know, there are so many instances of talking about religion in Star Trek. But in general, everyone in Starfleet is kind of an atheist. Or at least there's there's no acknowledgement that there is a higher power of any sort. Everyone is more focused on science and scientific explanations for things. Or it's explored like, yes, the Bajorans have their, you know, um, gods, but they're really space aliens. So they're right. not really gods. Right. But we're going to let them 
keep doing their thing. Right. So a lot of people objected to the the word faith being in the song. Um, mm. I totally understand that because it doesn't make any sense because this song wasn't written for this series. <laughs> <laughs> the look on your face. I wish we could show it to people. Oh, oh my God, you guys, you guys, it's. I have so much to say. I have so much more to say even. So there's that aspect of it, the subject matter that didn't make sense, the feel of the song that didn't make sense. We had also just spent three, count it, three different Star Trek series with orchestral Mm -hmm. instrumental themes. Uh, The first of which, um, a lot of you may know this, but the theme for Star Trek The Next Generation is also recycled. It is. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's in one of the Star Trek movies, right? The TOS. Uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. It is written by Jerry Goldsmith, uh, who is a very famous, very successful. Was a very famous, very successful film composer. Uh, he wrote Total Recall. He oh. wrote Yeah, which is one of my favorite scores ever. He has written hundreds of film scores, and he is very good and very excellent. Uh, he also wrote Voyager, the Voyager theme. Uh, he did not write Deep Space Nine, but they were, but it was modeled after his style of composing. Sure, sure. Um, he also wrote the scores for several more. Um, he and James Horner wrote scores for several more um, Star Trek movies. So he's we're we're here we're here putting Diane Warren and her style of of writing music right next to Jerry Goldsmith. And the two couldn't, I mean, they have some things in common, like they know how to write a melody, but they're so vastly different. And the fandom had been used to Jerry Goldsmith for a decade, for over a decade. (laughs) And then you hand them Diane Warren? Like, what the fuck are you thinking, Rick Berman? What? (laughs) Yeah, it's like if you you took... uh... I, I don't know, actually, if John Williams stepped away from the Harry Potter uh, series, but, you know, obviously he it's like when you think of Harry Potter, you think that do, 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 yeah. do, it's like if you took John Williams away and then you're like, hey, let's give Trent Re- Reznor like the next movie. Let's just give him that. I feel like honestly, I feel like Trent Reznor would would work there. Well, <laughs> it's 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 almost like it's I will I will counter with it's like instead of giving it to john williams you give it to adele <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and again it's not that it was it's a bad like i don't i'm not gonna listen to it in my spare time but it's more just about knowing your product and because like yes like star trek it's a good story and it's stories and there's a lot of heart into it but at the end of the day it's a tv show like we recognize that it's a product when you're thinking of marketing and those decisions behind it yeah it's yeah. so bizarre that, you know, uh, even if Rick Berman did push it along, it's so bizarre that it happened this way. And it's just, to me, it, it's one of those memories, too, of just where Star Trek was at this point. Like, Voyager had crawled to seven seasons, uh, but was definitely struggling. And Star Trek as a franchise was kind of on its way out. So the fact that they were having this new Enterprise show... You know, it was in a way sort of like a Hail Mary throw. And there were so many things about the show, which we won't get into because I'm sure we will in a later episode about the interesting decisions that were made. And this is one of them that just really highlights uh, some of the struggle that the show and franchise was having and being relevant. 
yes, at the time. Yes, yes. And I I will I'll put um a lot of that on the shoulders of a Rick Berman or a Brandon Braga, to be honest, because um Star Trek was at a again you're right star trek was at in a in a struggling place struggling to be relevant again but instead of going back to the original vision that gene roddenberry had for star trek and looking at that and how that was the thing that made star trek popular to begin with they looked at what was popular in pop culture in the late 90s yeah and that is i think a lot if if you look at the problems in general with enterprise that is the problem almost every time <laughs> is was, that they were not they were not looking they were not going back to star trek and yeah. infinite diversity and infinite combinations right they were going to what's going to sell to an audience in 2000 in, in 1998 basically they were <laughs> they were felt like, like they wanted gonna... to be on cw or something yes exactly some exactly and even like that shit was going out at the time. Like, yeah, well, exactly. And that was my point. Is like even that was starting to like you know like Buffy's on its way out and all these. Yeah, things are... they were fucking chasing trends instead of yes. instead of going back to the heart of why people watched the show to begin with. And that is, I think, the reason why that Discovery is doing so well right now, hmm. because they they were like, oh, what's the point of Star Trek? And they went back to infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And they were like, let's start here. Well, and it's so interesting, too, because I think you can, you know, talking about that makes me think about Lower Decks, which we will eventually talk about the we'll, rest of Lower we'll, Decks. We will. We and, will. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's interesting when you look at that and uh, like, do I think Lower Decks is the most amazing thing? No, but I do think it, the the first, you know, three episodes we talked about, I thought they were doing a Star Trek version of that type of animation. And when I say that, I don't mean the actual style. I mean, you know, the adult kind of Rick and Morty yeah, yeah. type things. Um, I thought they were doing it well. I was like, yeah. I get what you're doing. Like, that's paying attention to a genre. And I don't even know if I could call it a trend because it's been going on for so many years for now. For such a long time, um, yeah. Yeah, like those things are that kind of flavor of animation is here to stay. But, you know, so it does show that you can take influences about what's happening around you and do it well. I even, again, think about The the Trouble of Edward, the short. Yeah. And I'm sure, I haven't seen all the shorts, but I'm sure a lot of the Star Trek shorts do this, where they're kind of paying homage or a nod to a genre or, you know, like I'm sure someone was like, oh, well, what if we did like Star Trek noir or like yeah, a detective yeah, yeah. story in Star yeah, Trek? Yeah, yeah. But they, they do it really in a smart way. Whereas yeah. this just felt like what... I've heard some of my industry called the Me Too syndrome, which, oh God, which I shouldn't correct. Like, it has nothing to do with the Me Too movement. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> yes. It's different than that. But, but where it's just like somebody else does something, it's successful. Oh, Me Too. I want to do that. So yeah. again, harking back to what was popular in music and movies and TV yeah. shows, but you're three or four years behind, the world's already moved on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not because Star Trek was groundbreaking yeah. star trek was the first to do a lot of things on television and then we see star trek not pushing the envelope not well being if groundbreaking. anything people wanted to be star trek right yeah 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 and then it flipped. yeah exactly so like this is this is a symptom 
this theme song is a symptom yes. of other problems. Yes. In a perfect world, Diane Warren writing a theme song for a Star Trek series should be my favorite thing. <laughs> right? This should be your dream come true. Like this should this is like the intersection of several of my interests. Um and I am mad that it's not. I'm angry cuz first of all, I I will admit as a fan of Diane Warren, this is not her best work. Uh, this does sound like she was paid to write it for a movie and that's fine. She was because she was paid to write it for a movie. So it's a, so it's first of all, a symptom of the problems that the franchise was having at the time and the reach and control that Rick Berman had now had over the franchise and where that sort of took it. And then it's also a symptom of something else that is very, very, close to my heart and that is the state of the world of music written for film and television in general i recently i don't know if you saw this lauren but i like went on a an instagram stories rampage about how pretty much all composers for film and television are white men i don't think i saw this (laughs) i went on like a full like two-day rampage where i just i was just like Name a film composer in TV and movies and mainstream TV and movies that is not a white man. I will wait. And you're like, John William. Oh, oh, <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith, Danny Elfman, James Corner. <laughs> it literally it is. It's bad. It's very bad. This is this is across the board, like for every everything in in mainstream film and TV. But. I would like to put out there to everyone listening who hates this song that Diane Warren is the only woman to ever write music for Star Trek. Hmm. The only one. Like, ever. <laughs> and that she, when when this song was used for Enterprise, she was at the top of her game successful success wise she was writing number one hits she was she was writing for famous singers she was winning awards left and right she was being nominated for oscars she she has a shit ton of money right and <laughs> she's legit she's fucking legit and if a woman like that is then put in a situation where she's shoehorned in to a situation where she doesn't fit anyway. That does a disservice to just like women in general writing music for TV and movies because they're like, oh, like, look at that. She's so successful and it still didn't work. And even if that that thought is just subconscious, it's in the back of people's minds, it is still pervasive. And if you look at the state of film and TV music now, it's a little more diverse, but it's really not that much more diverse than it was in 2001. And to think that the only time that a woman ever wrote any music for Star Trek was this song, it like makes me really angry. Which you have to remember, <laughs> too, again, she didn't write it she, for Star Trek. And That's she the other didn't thing. even like, write it for really- Star Trek. If you really think about it, there still hasn't been 
Yeah. Well, I, there may have been. I don't know. You know this. But even at that time, she wasn't the first woman to write something for Star Trek because she she didn't write it. It was just a song that they decided to yeah. use. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't know what's happened since this song. If still, there have been still women none. involved no. in the scoring or now. OK, Larissa's is shaking her head. But no. yeah, like so I guess you could say there still hasn't been a woman who has written or composed music for Star Trek. Yeah, it's it's uh, very upsetting to me. Because, again, I think that's where some of the confusion, like going back, you said people were angry at her for writing this song. Those people probably don't realize, again, this was a product yeah. that was made beforehand and just slapped on. It has Nobody wrote it in response to Star Trek. Yeah. Um, let again, me ask you this, just because you're talking about it. Get mad at Rick Berman. Get <laughs> mad at Rick Berman. Don't get mad at Diane Warren. Get mad at Rick Berman. <laughs> Yeah, this was written for a Robin Williams feel-good movie. Good like, for yeah. fuck's sake. It works great for that movie. It does. She it works it. great. She you know, it. She did. She nailed it. She, when she's given a, an assignment, she nails it. Yeah. She very much nails it. Um, I was going to ask if, because you were talking about, you know, just uh, white, you know, everyone's been male and everyone's been, been white. Have there been any black or, you know, people of color Oh, Larissa shaking her head. <laughs> Are you saying oh. writing music for a Star so Trek? So it's no. still, all right. No. I mean, uh, so when Even I went on Star that. Star Trek, like short tracks, you haven't noticed anything? Michael Giacchino. Oh, yeah. That that came up before, yeah. I think. Um, and he's excellent. He is, he's an excellent composer. Uh, he wrote uh, the, the score for the new, the J.J. Abrams reboots. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and... He's he's written some of my my favorite modern scores. He wrote the score for Up. He wrote the score for The Incredibles. Oh. He's he's excellent. He's excellent, but oh. he's also still a white man. So when people think when people imagine a a composer in their mind, they imagine someone like John Williams. You know, that's just it's just the it's the same as like think imagine a doctor in your head. Mm. You know, for most people, they imagine a a white man. Imagine it's, your dad. Oh, my dad. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. Kind, 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 a kind dad with a beard. Kind eyes. Yeah, it's very kind. But, but uh, this is this is not just a problem in Star Trek. This is a problem in general. And if we're talking about infinite diversity and in, in infinite combinations, if we're talking about how this new era of Star Trek is bringing more people with diverse backgrounds into more uh, jobs within the making of these new series, yeah. then we have to talk about music. The and, process, yeah, yeah, and it's it's something that I think everyone, every every show and every movie should be talking about, but they're not. And if well, we're gonna if we're gonna talk about it, can we please fucking talk about it on Star Trek? Because I during that during that rampage I went on where yeah. I was like, give me give me composers that are not white men, and I got maybe. I got several responses from people who who mentioned the woman who wrote the score for Joker that won the Academy Award last year, and that is a big deal. But uh, I only got th- I only got one person mentioning someone that I didn't already know, hmm. and I was only able to think of like seven composers who have written anything for film and TV who are not white men, and that's ridiculous because I can think of so many white men that have won Oscar after Oscar after Oscar 
especially since like that's like a job I would love to have one day. And I I look at that world and I think like how do I even get in there? Like no how, who's going to give me a, a shot? Who's going to who's going to give a a woman like me who actually has a lot of experience writing instrumental music and has yeah, written you're, a lot you're of music composing stuff for a I'm composing the, all the, the time. ballet right now. Yeah. So yeah, I was asked by the fucking Nashville Ballet to write. I was it was supposed to be last year, but you know what? <laughs> COVID. COVID. Or it was supposed to be like right now, but <laughs> COVID. Oh. Um, but uh, I don't see myself represented there, and I never have. And most most people, most women, and especially women of color, have never seen themselves in that job. I mean, even the composers for in the past, like big Hollywood movies that that starred women or people of color, the music was written by white men still. So like even mm. Black Panther, the music was written by a white man, white man, Little Women, the music was written by a white man. So even in in situations where the, the story is about us, we're still not asked to write the music. I'm a big woman. Thank you. I, excuse, excuse me. I'm. <laughs> But like I'm a little woman, Lauren. <laughs> but I am like very little. <laughs> it's it's frust it's just it's frustrating as as a musician, as someone who has loved film music for such a long time, mm-hmm. as someone who loves Alan Menken, as someone who loves Jerry Goldsmith and loves Danny Elfman, and also somebody who's very happy to see Atticus Ross. And Trent Reznor getting a lot of work in film now. Or Johnny Greenwood. Like, that's really cool. But, like, where are the women? <laughs> yeah. And I think I think a lot of it is, again, as a, not only a teacher, but a, a college instructor where I'm kind of in this weird middle ground between career and mm-hmm. lower education. I think a lot of it does have to do with, you know, you, you just got to support the interest from those individuals, those people who loved music in middle and high school, but maybe don't quite make the jump into higher learning with music to pursue something like that. Um, or maybe are discouraged it from their younger. Maybe they just can't afford the instrument. You know what I mean? That is a definitely um, a, a, a big problem as far as um, uh, the connection to, to cl- the classical yeah. music world. And, and I, and that's kind of one of you know, and that's kind of one of the things that people mean when they're talking about systematic uh, issues. Sometimes it's about that thing where, like I just said, sometimes someone just comes from a place where they can't afford the instrument, or they, you know, they're encouraged to to even pursue another, you know, oh, you can't, you you know, as an art as an art teacher in in art college, parents are scared that their kid says mm-hmm. they want to be a graphic designer, they want to be a, you know, like a a professional sculptor or something they're just yeah. like well you can't do anything um and That's so totally true. I, I think with music we're gonna need that too any of the arts really it's like there needs to be that support from an earlier time in these individuals so that we can get them in those careers and in those industries yeah i, I think that's definitely one one important aspect to it. And the mm-hmm. other one for me is the simple fact that like there are already a lot of women out there that are composers and they need to be hired. There are, yeah. there are, I mean, so, so here, here we are in this place. I don't know if it's ever happened, but I'm just, I'm just thinking like, okay, we're asking at, uh, we're asking Trent Reznor. We're asking Johnny Greenwood to write film scores. Like anyone ever asked Bjork? That anyone? would be awesome by the way. 
right? I'm well, like anyone. Did, yeah, well, she did she dance her in the dark, in, but that was different. That was that, that was, was different. Like, yeah, you know, like anyone, anyone ever think to ask Imogen Heap to write a film score? Oh, anyone ever? You know, I'm just like I'm. I'm thinking like it is so it occurs to people to ask it it just automatically occurs to people to ask white men to do things like this. So I'm like well, and we well the it, it kind of goes back down to gatekeepers too. Like yes. I've been really lucky to teach at some top art colleges in the country, but it all started because a white man took a chance on me. Yes. Yes. And I totally recognize that. That is that's a that's big. It's one of those things to be aware of. And I'm trying to be more aware of it too, not just for you know, like there's several times that I get asked to do a job and I can't take it. I'm too busy or it's just not the right job for me. And I'm like, but I can recommend some artists. And I've been trying really to make sure I'm recommending not only people that are talented, like obviously, but yeah. like I really am asking myself, like, who am I opening the door for? Yes. You know, and trying trying to get people who are younger in their careers or... um yeah yeah like again it's like that's part of it too it's just like yes. the people you hang out with and who in your circle that's kind of a systematic circular thing too where yes you know I have asked like wow these three people I'm recommending I kind of take a look at the list and I'm like are they all one gender are yeah. they are they all white you know yeah and, yeah and being like maybe I should spread the wealth <laughs> yes exactly exactly and i feel like getting new voices into that world has to be a priority for some of these people with power and until that happens it's going to be really we're still gonna i'm still gonna be every year like are there really just we're just going to keep asking john williams to write more scores until he dies he doesn't he like he's <laughs> he's fine. the man's busy <laughs> the man's busy i bet he's tired it's it's also as a as a um, musician and as somebody that loves to listen to this kind of music, I would really just love to hear something fucking different. <laughs> well, and it's so important it's, with a I'm genre tired. like sci-fi. Yes, because, it has to be different. Well, not only that, I feel like from a creative process too. If you get people who are coming from all different backgrounds and stuff, I mean. One of the t wonderful challenges about sci-fi is that you were literally making alien races. You were trying yes. to come up with things that are bizarre and no one's New. ever seen before yes. because it's an alien race. And if you have all these people who are, well, I, you know, you know, not that like just because I'm white and someone else is white, we're going to listen to the same music. Yes. Yeah. But, but just the idea that the more diversity you get in a sci-fi creative room, then the more types of music, the more types of literature, the more like this yeah. and this and this. So, you know, you just start to get this really interesting soup going on where you could, you know, I would love to see what would happen if you took three musicians um, who come from different parts of the world and different cultures and backgrounds and see like what cool music they can make combining, you know, well, I've never heard of this instrument, but oh yeah, this is like an instrument that, you know. Yes, yes. Again, we again we're also going back to infinite diversity and infinite combinations, which is like where where a lot of the new creative stuff always has come from. People coming from very different backgrounds come together and make something together that they couldn't make alone. And it's always great. It, I mean, it's great to like look at this new Star Trek and see more more diversity happening in in all different aspects you know like we're seeing more diversity in directing we're seeing more diversity in producing and in the acting cast and the voice casts and uh all of that is great um there's just there's this one place that we're still not seeing it 
and mm. and 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 we're not seeing that in general in all of uh this kind of art well and and again i think it has to go to you know especially in last year there's been a lot of a lot of talk about how it just put in a little extra effort like i said when i recommend somebody to an art director when i say i can't take this job but let me recommend three artists that can that you should check out yeah you know it's like i take an extra fucking minute and <laughs> remind myself i go through my instagram or i look real quick online there's plenty of sites that recommend like certain artists of certain backgrounds and um throw them throw them that way you know to yeah. that artist um and it, and it takes me an extra five minutes I wish y'all um, could have seen Lauren's face. She was when she was like, "Take an extra minute," <laughs> and that's like really what it really comes down with. People are sometimes on autopilot, and they just suggest like people in their peer group. And when you look around your peer group, it's not uncommon that your peers tend to be more like you. And you know, maybe you need to step out a little bit. That seems like a very Star Trek thing to do. You know, step yes. step out of yourself for the benefit of others. Yes, it, yes. You know what? That's I think. I think it's that that it seems just so Star Trek to to be making more headway as far as as that goes. It seems like it, that that would be something that Star Trek would want to do or and would would be paying attention to right now. But th- they haven't been and I'm like I'm bummed because I love Star Trek so much and I also love film and TV underscore so much. I love that kind of music and I love how important it is to a show like like music is so fucking important to a show music can make or break a show as we have been talking about on this episode of our podcast music can make or break a thing and sometimes it breaks it and here we are in a spot here we are talking about faith of the heart and how it in a lot of ways is a symptom of what broke Enterprise and what broke the Star Trek franchise in the early 2000s. So, like, let's <laughs> the first just... impression. I mean, it was yes! the first impression of the show is for fuck's the, sake. An opening. <laughs> Music can break a thing. So, like, bringing in more more perspectives is always a good thing, and especially on a show like Star Trek. And that's the thing that we say a lot on this podcast. We say like, like we we are we're hoping for Star Trek to always continue to be more diverse. In general, but like, but I personally am saying, please, for fuck's sake, <laughs> can we hire someone that's not a white man to write music for this show already? <laughs> really? I mean, I'm I'm gonna just go ahead and put myself out there and say I, I have say. fucking watched every episode of Star Trek that has ever existed, and I have listened to all the music. All of the music for all of the things. And I can write you a thing. I can write a thing. Let me do it. I know they've already probably hired a white guy to write the music for a strange new worlds. I know that they have. Oh. I'm I've been frustrated with with this <laughs> with this situation for years. And I feel years like I years. entered this episode very angry and we're leaving with you very with angry. With me being <laughs> angry. <laughs> I mean, I'm upset too, but you're like, yeah, ah! I'm like, no, because uh, because like, uh, I mean, I'll just I'll leave it here with the only woman who ever wrote any music that was ever used in in any Star Trek is one of my favorite songwriters. And uh, sh- she was sort of vilified for her contribution. And uh, 
since then, Star Trek as a franchise has never once made an effort to hire anyone other than white men to write music for for the franchise. So um, I'm just I'm just like, y'all. Yeah. And, fuck and you. Again, they didn't even <laughs> hire her. She just. Yeah. They didn't even hire her. They just grabbed one of her songs. They just grabbed one of her songs out of the bargain bin and threw it at the (laughs) fucking show. Like, (laughs) it's rude. It's rude what they did. It's rude what Rick Berman did. (laughs) They owe her an apology. They do. Rick Berman owes Diane Warren a fucking apology. You know what? But she doesn't care because she has so much money. She's so That's rich. our opening right there. Yeah. Rick hey, Berman. Berman. Show. <laughs> Diane Warren a fucking apology. Uh, in conclusion, hire me to write music. <laughs> <laughs> Find us in the collective at intothewormhole.show. On Instagram at intothewormhole.podcast. Into the Wormhole is brought to you by We Own This Town. Man, it's just like hard for me to like be excited for a white guy for getting a job.